Norman Centuries, Episode 4, Magnificent Devil. Welcome back. Last time we talked about Richard the Good, whose 30-year reign gave Normandy some much-needed stability. By the time he expired in 1027, the duchy was prosperous and well-governed, easily one of the strongest provinces in France. The death of a medieval ruler was always an invitation to chaos, but Richard, as usual, had made excellent preparations for the succession. There were no shortage of available heirs to choose from. The duke had two brothers and five sons. The oldest son, Richard III, was the obvious choice, and he was groomed from the start. When his father died, he was 30 years old, popular, battle-tested, and most importantly, already had a son to ensure the next generation of dukes. The various other uncles and siblings were bought off with extensive estates around Normandy, and everyone was perfectly content to settle down and enjoy their new arrangements. The only one unhappy with the situation was Richard III's younger brother, Robert, who, at 17, was cocky, energetic, and absolutely convinced that he should be the one in charge. His share of the inheritance was an estate in central Normandy, focused around a castle in Falaise, and from the security of these walls he loudly announced his fitness to rule. When neither of his uncles showed the slightest interest in backing him, he decided to revolt anyway and started ravaging his way through the countryside. Richard III was in no mood to take any abuse from his little brother, and swept into fillets at the head of his army, forcing Robert to go scampering back to his castle. To the latter's horror, he then produced siege engines and proceeded to methodically reduce its defenses to rubble. To the latter's horror, he then produced siege engines and proceeded to methodically reduce its defenses to rubble. Robert was forced to make a humiliating public act of submission and returned chastened to fillets to rebuild his favorite residence. Richard's triumph over his brother set the stage for an even greater diplomatic coup. The King of France had an infant daughter, and as a mark of Richard's preeminent status, she was betrothed to him. The future seemed promising for the young duke, but just as he was making preparations for his wedding, he abruptly fell ill and died. Poison was immediately suspected, and though no one was foolish enough to say it to his face, everyone suspected Robert. His aspirations were well known, and his behavior hardly broadcast innocence. Almost before his brother's body was cold, Robert had moved into the palace and shipped Richard's young son off to a monastery to keep him safely out of the way. The incident earned the new duke the nickname Robert the Devil. But that's not altogether fair. Medieval society was notoriously susceptible to diseases, any number of which could strike without warning. Sudden death was among the most terrifying of fates, with no time for preparation, confession, or ritual, leaving its victims unprepared for the terrible day of judgment. So awful was this demise that a particularly vicious medieval curse was, may you die without warning. When one of the powerful met their end unexpectedly, the suspicion was that such a thing could not have occurred naturally. Of course, the explanation of what did actually happen depended on your popularity. Corrupt or wicked rulers were struck low by the divine hand, while the promising were invariably poisoned. Robert may have stood to benefit the most from his brother's death, perhaps he even wanted him dead, but that's hardly an airtight case for poisoning. His actions in seizing the duchy could be attributed to ambition and pragmatism as much as guilt, and by moving quickly and firmly he undoubtedly prevented further bloodshed. Although his reputation was certainly damaged, and rumors of his use of poison dogged him for the rest of his life. No one, not even the rightful heir Richard III's cloistered son Nicholas, seemed to have a problem with Robert taking control.
As a later Norman historian blandly summed it up, Robert was given the duchy by hereditary right. It was one thing to gain power, however, and quite another to actually rule. Robert had taken every opportunity he could to encourage independence among the aristocracy, to stir up trouble against his brother, and now he was plagued by the same problems. Unauthorized castles started popping up, but he was too busy settling old scores to do anything about it. His uncle, who also happened to be the Archbishop of Rouen, had failed to support him in his first revolt, and now the time had come for a little payback. Marching into his protesting uncle's territory, the duke unceremoniously expelled him from Normandy and confiscated his property. Encouraged by this easy victory, Robert next turned on his cousin, the Bishop of Bayeux, sending another hapless relative into exile. This seizure of church property didn't go unnoticed by the Pope in Rome, where Robert's banished uncle the Archbishop was arguing for all of Normandy to be put under interdict. His case was strengthened by the Duke's continued reckless behavior. Unable or unwilling to reign in his vassals, Robert remained aloof while the nobility followed his example, seizing monastic land and generally behaving as if they were a law unto themselves. Protesting clergy were ignored and sent packing, and word of their suffering eventually trickled down to Rome. Finally, the Pope had had enough. Robert was excommunicated. News of the dreadful sentence was brought to Robert in fillets, but he was too distracted to pay much attention. He had just met a most extraordinary woman named Erlieve. She was the daughter of a tanner, and according to legend, Robert caught sight of her while he was on the roof of his castle one day. Erlieve was assisting her father by walking barefoot on the garments that were being dyed, holding her dress up to keep it clean. When she noticed the duke's attention, she coyly lifted her skirts a bit higher, dazzling Robert with a view of her legs. Instantly smitten, the duke ordered one of his men to quietly fetch her, instructing him to bring her through the back door directly to his chambers. Erlieve, however, would have none of this, and announced that she would either come proudly through the front gate, or not at all. The obsessed duke caved in, and Erlieve rode proudly up to the castle on a white horse, dressed in her finest clothes. If she was going to be the duke's mistress, then she would be his only one, and make sure that everyone knew it. Not long after, she presented Robert with a son, and the pleased father named him William, after the second duke of Normandy. The difference in their social status made a marriage impossible, and Robert soon found himself under enormous pressure to marry her off to someone else, and cease his association with her. A century earlier, a mistress wouldn't have been a problem, but the slow reform of the church that his father and grandfather had encouraged had begun to reshape the morals of Normandy. Even more serious than this, however, was Robert's excommunication. Sacraments were forbidden to a man who had been placed under interdict, his vassals were released from their bonds, and he faced the very real threat of eternal damnation and burial in unconsecrated ground. Every day that passed endangered his mortal soul, and even the hot-headed Robert couldn't shrug off such pressure forever. By 10.30, he had had enough. Swallowing his pride, he recalled his uncle the archbishop and restored his property and land. The move was unexpectedly the great turning point of his reign. Like young Prince Hal and Henry V, his reckless days were over, and he was determined to acquit himself as a proper duke. Erlieve was provided with a husband, church property that had been seized was returned, and an attempt was made to force the lawless magnates to do likewise. The great religious houses in Normandy, especially at Ficamp, 
were endowed at his personal expense and placed under his protection. The nobility naturally resisted any attempts at centralization, but Robert at least kept them occupied by a vigorous foreign policy. When the Count of Flanders was exiled by his son, Robert took the opportunity to invade his neighbor, ostensibly to restore the old count, but in reality to extend his influence. The next year, Brittany threatened Mont Saint-Michel, and Robert repeated the same tactics, forcing the count to publicly acknowledge his vassal status. In 1033, a palace coup sent the young French king Henry I into exile, courtesy of his stepmother, and handed Robert a golden opportunity to extend Normandy's reach. Henry naturally fled to Fécamp, home of his most robust supporter, and requested the duke's help. An army was mobilized and Robert swept towards Paris, crushing the queen's forces and restoring Henry to his throne. The same year that saw Robert play kingmaker on the continent also brought opportunities across the English Channel. The duke had close ties with the Anglo-Saxon royal family. His aunt Emma had married the English king, and her two sons, Alfred and Edward, were just slightly older than Robert. During Duke Richard II's reign, a Viking named Canute had seized England, sending the three royals to an exile in Normandy. They weren't together for long. Emma, ever the survivor, had returned to England to marry Canute, abandoning her two sons to survive as best they could. Robert's cautious father had been somewhat indifferent to his English nephew's fate, but Robert was closer in age and moved by his cousin's plight. With his characteristic flair, he began to refer to the older one Edward as King of the English and made the awkward demand that Canute provide money for their upkeep. When Canute laughed it off, he was hardly going to provide accommodations for rivals to his own throne, Robert followed up his threat with an invasion fleet. This first attempt at a Norman conquest wasn't exactly successful. The fleet set sail in 1033, but ran into a storm and was blown off course, landing further along the French coast in the middle of Brittany. Not one to waste the opportunity, Robert cheerfully disembarked and led a quick raid through his neighbor's territory. By the winter of 1034, Robert was 25 years old and the most powerful magnate in France. He had corralled his vassals, dominated his neighbors, threatened one king and placed another on his throne, quite an accomplishment for a formerly reckless youth. He was at the height of his powers and appeared poised to become one of Normandy's strongest dukes. Then, at his Christmas court, he shocked everyone by producing his eight-year-old son William as his heir and announcing that he was leaving for Jerusalem. There were the inevitable scandalized rumors, whispers that it was his guilty conscience that was spurring him to go, and that this was dramatic confirmation that he had poisoned his brother after all. In any event, whether it was guilt, adventure, or fatigue that drove Robert, he was determined to go. In a way, the destination was more astonishing than the idea of a pilgrimage itself. The more popular sites were Rome or Santiago de Compostela in Spain, and the road to Jerusalem was not only more expensive, but far more dangerous, passing as it did through hostile Muslim lands. In 1027, however, a Byzantine emperor had reached an agreement with the Fatimid ruler of Jerusalem, guaranteeing the pilgrim routes and access to Christian shrines. As a result, traffic to the Holy Land had boomed, crowding the roads with the faithful who wanted to arrive just in time for the thousandth anniversary of the crucifixion. Robert had probably been thinking about the pilgrimage for some time. Leaving the duchy in the hands of a child was hardly the most responsible thing to do, 
but he wanted to go, and he made what arrangements he could. He'd been slowly easing his son William into the role of heir, granting gifts and signing documents in his name. Now, at his Christmas court, he required his magnates to swear an oath of loyalty, something which they all did without exception or objection. Satisfied that he had fulfilled his obligations, Robert collected his treasury and left Normandy forever. He crossed the Alps and headed first for Rome, distributing so much gold to churches along the way that he was soon being called Robert the Magnificent, certainly a step or two up from his old nickname. Had he gone just a bit further south, he would have encountered the first Normans who were trickling into the heel of Italy, but he probably headed for the coast instead and took a ship for the east. He arrived in Constantinople sometime early in 1035, making the most of his time by taking a tour of the city and even meeting the emperor, who, in a bit of vanity on the part of Norman chroniclers, was supposedly impressed with his wealth. After mingling with the imperial court, the duke continued to Jerusalem, which he reached in time to celebrate Holy Week. The city had plenty of ways for a pilgrim to spend his money, and Robert took in all the sights, praying in the church of the Holy Sepulchre and retracing the route Jesus walked on his way to the crucifixion. His return trip was by all accounts equally pleasant. When he reached the Bosphorus in early summer, he paused at the charming little city of Nicaea. There he unexpectedly fell ill, and on July 2, 1035, he died. In a nod to his refurbished reputation, a rumor started that he had been poisoned, and one Norman chronicler piously argued that God took him because he was too good for this world. The body was buried in Nicaea, where it was left to its rest until 1085, when a Norman delegation arrived to take it back home. They had only made it as far as Apulia, however, when word reached them that the current duke had died as well, so they reinterred the body in Italy, where it remains to this day. His brief reign had been a mixed success, and his impetuous departure for the east had virtually ensured civil war back home. His failure to bring the powerful nobility to heel had left his eight-year-old illegitimate son William the Herculean task of re-establishing ducal authority, and had left him terribly alone, vulnerable to the far more experienced men around him. Join me next time as I talk about the remarkable story of William's survival, how, against the odds, a fatherless boy rose to become the most famous duke in Norman history. Norman Centuries is a podcast written and recorded by Lars Brownworth, author of the book Lost to the West, and creator of the 12 Byzantine Rulers podcast. Visit us online at normancenturies.com.